when you go home. Welcome, Andrew and Nicky and family. Gilmore. Can I've heard so much about these guys. I held them at uh, Sunny Bray last year. People that carry a passion for transformed lives because themselves have seen their whole family transformed by the power and the love and grace of Jesus. So I want you to give him a very special FCC welcome as they come. Well, thank you. Thanks for having us. Um, a team Jesus, eh? What about, uh, what about second teams? We allowed second teams? My second team would probably be uh, Rangers, I think. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. Probably a close second. What about you, Kev? What's your, what's your second team? Oh, is that right? Eh? What, what would it take to, to get you back the other side? I could, I could get Nicky to jump out and get you a, a 99 or something. 99 with a flake. Would that, would that bring you back? No? <laughs> ah, team Jesus all the way, yeah? Um, ah, thanks for having us. Um, delighted to be here. Really kind of just wanted to come and share our heart and share what Jesus has done in our lives and how he has blessed us through our journey. Um, so my name's Andrew, um, and I'm just going to share a wee bit of my story. I grew up um, in a wee town called Stevenson in Ayrshire. Um, Kind of very early on in my life, from I was eight years old, I was almost born into an addicted family. I was, um, I was the youngest of three. I had three older sisters, and I had an older stepbrother. And um, growing up, three older sisters. My mum was a single mum till I was eight. The only boy, a wee tiny bit spoiled. But as soon as we turned eight, things kind of drastically changed for us. My dad was a drug dealer. My mum and dad had rekindled when I was eight years old and I was raised in that environment. Um, it was a really obviously toxic and dark environment. Um, all we ever knew was drugs and violence and hiding yourself away from the law, hiding yourself away from social services, just living in complete darkness. You know how it goes. Um, and that was kind of what we were we, we were getting uh, raised in, me and my sisters. Um, so at eight years old, we move in with my dad, a tiny wee bed set. We were in a three-bedroom house on the same street, but because my dad didn't want to tell his customers that he had moved, we moved in with my dad into a bed set. So there was like, my uncle Kenny stayed there, my, my stepbrother James stayed there, so there was heaps of us living in this bed set. And I'm sure as you can imagine, it was, it was absolute chaos. People coming to the door 24-7, looking for this, looking for that. My dad, a very kind of manly man, orange man, raised in the orange order, solved every problem he had with his fists or a weapon or something like that. And um, that was just how I knew life. That was all I really was ever exposed to. I never knew there was any other way to live life. I looked at other people at school and I thought, surely they must have similar issues. Surely they are getting raised in similar difficulties to me. But, uh, and I, I guess some of them were, but I wasn't to, to know that, you know. Um, so my dad's raising us in this environment. His main things, he's selling benzos, he's selling weed, he's selling all sorts like that. But when I was around about 12, somebody introduced my dad to heroin. Somebody introduced, they brought it into the house, they owed him some money, they gave him it. And him and my mum tried it. And I can remember being in the house at the time and I can still smell it. I can still 
remember exactly where I was sitting in the room when I seen them do it. And my older sisters, my stepbrother was there as well. And um, they very, very quickly got addicted, like almost instantaneously. Um, my dad, up to that point, had took everything under the sun. He was actually on a methadone program. The doctor had put him on 180 mils of meth to come off drink, which was just insane. He used to share that with his brother and just take copious amounts of anything else they could get their hands on, you know. So um, 12 years old, mum and dad started to take heroin, got addicted, instant decision for my dad. I'll start selling this. So very, very quickly, stopped selling everything else and was quite a big heroin dealer. Um, he obviously, in his kind of lifestyle, would be the kind of main boss man, so everybody else would run around after him. So obviously me and my sisters would get the door. We would be the runners, so somebody would come to the door looking for whatever it is they were looking for. We would go and answer the door, and we would have to get the money off them, go back to my dad, tell them what this people wanted, and go back and deal that out to them. Obviously growing up in that environment, that being all you're exposed to, it's almost like a predestined thing. I just, you can't really, with everything else going on, I had issues for before my mum and dad got together with abuse and stuff like that, stuff buried deep in my heart that I didn't know what to think about or, or, or deal with. So one day, after my sisters had already tried it, I decided to try heroin. I was only 13. Really, really, really quickly got addicted. So I was addicted to heroin at 13. Whole family. My mum, my dad, my uncle Kenny stayed with us, my big brother James, my three sisters and me, every one of us. My dad feeding every one of our habits from dealing. And it was just, I'm sure you can imagine it, just absolute chaos, just absolute darkness and depravity and, and moving house all the time, running for social services, the door getting put in all the time. I think I was strip searched three times, the first time when I was only 13. Um, just an absolute chaotic environment. In the midst of this, my sister had been away she, I think it was a victory outreach she went to when she was 17 or 18. She'd had a baby. She'd had a wee boy, my nephew, William. And she obviously had a habit at the time. So she decided to go away. We had a family friend, some of you have heard of him, John Edwards. We met John back in, I think it was 97, 98. John helped get Michelle away. So Michelle did go away. She was away for about six weeks. And she met a guy there. She, kinda, she fell in love, apparently. And um, they ran away together. They ended up back in Stevenson and moved in together. Now, Michelle was able to stay clean. She had fell pregnant again, and she'd gave birth to a wee boy, Declan. At this stage, I think I'm about 14. Michelle, I think she was 19, 18, 19. And um, what happened was my dad had worked it so that we managed to live upstairs, uh, downstairs for Michelle. So there was like a block of flo uh, four flats. And um, Michelle lived in the top flat and she would hold my dad's stash and we lived in the bottom flat so that if anything ever had to happen, if the police ever tried to raid us, it was just my dad's way of trying to keep himself protected. But anyway, Michelle lived up the stairs from us and I can remember one morning I woke up and it was quite late. I think it was about half ten, which was 
It's, a, it's, a, it's actually an early time to wake up as a drug addict, I think. But to everybody else, to me now, that's extremely late. That's half a day gone, isn't it? But, um, so I woke up, it was about half ten, and the house was quiet. There was no noise, no nothing. I couldn't hear a thing. And then all of a sudden, I just heard this absolute blood-curdling scream from upstairs. A scream that I just... I will never escape it. It, it lives in my head. We've got this modern thing of these videos that live rent-free in my head. Well, this scream lives rent-free in my head. It's, it's a crazy thing. And I didn't know what I was going to see. All I could hear was her screaming. And I could track her scream across the corridor and then down the stairs, run outside into the front door. And she was banging, banging, banging on the front door. I'm the only one that's awake. I'm the only one that stood there. And I'm petrified to go and open the door. I didn't know what I was going to see. I go along, I open the door, expecting to see her covered in blood or something, some accident, something horrible has happened, and something horrible had happened. My nephew, Declan, five weeks old, had died sudden infant death, caught death. My sister, Michelle, woke up. She was trying to sort herself out, trying to get her life right, and boom. So we all stood there, I remember standing at the back of the couch while my dad is trying to do CPR on this tiny wee baby. Just absolute chaos and pandemonium going on and about. Police and paramedics coming in, there was all sorts sitting about. My dad had a sawn-off shotgun down the side of his chair. Police are just ignoring everything that's around about them, focusing on Declan, quite rightly. But um, he was gone. There was nothing they could do. They took my sister Michelle to the hospital with him. They took my mum to hospital, and we are just sitting there waiting. And she comes back and she says he's gone. And that was Michelle. That night, Michelle went back on it. I can remember sitting a couple of nights later after she had came round for everything that she was getting doped up on one night and just screamed, why me? Why me? So I think at that point something broke in my dad. And I think it quite right enough, you know, it, it, his family was in absolute destruction and chaos and ruin. So I think at that point something broke in my dad and he decided, I need to try and sort this out, I need to try and get some help for everybody. So I contacted John again, and after a couple of false starts with other wee bits and pieces of rehab, we'd found a place in Northern Ireland called the Christian Family Centre. And the Christian Family Centre was able to take in a whole family. Um, they had chalets where you could live. We, I was in there with my mum and dad and one of my sisters. One of my sisters was in the girls' centre, and that's just kind of... They were... Apprehens apprehensive at first. They took us over in stages. They took me, my mum and dad at first because they obviously didn't want six, seven people there detoxing all at once. It would be an absolute mayhem. <laughs> so um, they decided to take us in bits and pieces. So they did. My dad had made a commitment. We'd been in the church. We'd all get baptised. And that's kind of where our journey with God began. We knew, we started to get to know of God, but we didn't, didn't know him, you know. It would only just been exposed to us. And obviously, you're just, just trying to go over everything else and all this stuff's getting flung at you. So you just agree, yeah, I will get baptised. I will do this, I will do that. Because it got us away and got us the help we needed. But this rehab, being Christian, obviously immersed us a wee bit deeper into that. And we started to really grasp the decision that we had made. At that point, obviously, my dad struggled. 
my dad being the guy he was, my dad was raised in care homes, my dad a fighter, a boxer, a man's man. Every issue he'd ever had, he dealt with, with his fists or whatever. And this whole new way of living was getting exposed to my dad. So he struggled to bring the stuff to the surface that he had to deal with for his past. He had abuse in his past from the care homes. Um, there was a huge case in Ayrshire of a care home called Kerla, where my dad was for years. And it was just, he buried that so deep and never ever wanted to expose or release any of that. And that ended up contributing to my dad's demise. We were in the rehab, lasted six months. My mum really struggled. She had started to, at this point, show signs of mental, poor mental health. We think now she had drug-induced uh, psychosis to begin with then. But um, struggled to gear up the fags. So she was caught smoking on a day out one time. And we were only about six, seven months in, and they asked them to leave. I was allowed to stay on because I had started an apprenticeship with an engineering firm and I was working kind of in the, the workshop that they had there at the centre. And because my big sister Michelle and her wee boy William stayed on, they were like, right, Andrew can stay, but mum and dad had to leave. So they left and they moved to a wee town just on the coast of Northern Ireland called Ballycastle. And my dad went out that day, or the day after, I think, and the first thing he did, they went, they'd obviously bought fags, but he went and he, tried, he bought himself four beers. Now, my dad would argue the point at this time that drink wasn't his problem, that it was drugs, that it was this, it was that. My dad was put on methadone for drink. My dad obviously had an addictive personality, and that is really a thing. It absolutely is. He's, he was kind of pre-built into him. So he bought these four beers, and he's walking along a country path, and he sees a horse in a field. So my dad goes over and he goes to pet the horse. The horse bit him in the fingers and he fell. <laughs> and he, he fell in amongst all these brambles and he's getting jagged always and he's, he's cussing and whatever, you know. So he's, trying to, he's struggling there and he's trying to get himself back on his feet. So he goes to pull himself up and he finds this object and he grabs the object and he, he, he's able to pull himself up on it. And after he pulled himself up, he thought to himself, what was that? What was that that I, I was able to kind of lift myself up on? He dusted it off and he realised it was an old horse plough. You know, like people have them in their gardens now. It's like an ornament you have in the front garden. He, he realised it was one of them. Somebody just left at the side of the road in a ditch, uh, the side of the path. So he's like, ah, that's interesting. So he picks up his beers, goes back to the house. When he goes in the house, though, he doesn't open the beers. He goes to his Bible. And he opens his Bible, and it's Luke 9, 62, is the very first verse he reads. And that says, Jesus replied, No one who puts a hand to the plough and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. And that was an absolute undeniable moment where God was speaking directly right to my dad. There's, there's no denying that. What had happened to him? God was saying, look, Willie, you've set out on a path here. You've got a fixed goal in mind, so you need to keep your eye on that goal and keep on the straight and narrow and keep on the straight line. He was too busy looking at his past. He was too busy dealing with everything that was running about him, dealing with the rocks at his feet when he should have been looking at his goal. Obviously, my dad drank my beers. So for years after that, my dad struggled with alcoholism. 
As the story goes on, we moved back to Dumfries. My dad was able to hide that and mask that quite well, and John never really knew the extent of my dad's issue there, so he offered him a job, and it was in a rehab. It was a, a rehab that John started in Dumfries called Walking Free. So my dad was like, great, I'll use this as a, an excuse to try and kind of sort myself out. Him and my mum had obviously started to have kind of difficulties with each other, and my mum was displaying some real signs of drug-induced psychosis. One day, my mum just got up and vanished. My mum's a missing person right now. No seen her in years and years and years. She's never met AJ or Roman. I think she met Holly once. So um, that's as, as far as the story with my mum goes. But um, my dad, we came back, we moved back. He met another woman. They fell in love. Um, awkward bit of the story. <laughs> right, so I came back with my dad then. I met Nikki in Northern Ireland. Nikki's mum came to our house while we still lived there. I was only a year or so clean. Nikki's mum came to the house, and Nikki came, and she was sat in my room, and we're watching MTV music videos together, and I'm looking at Nikki, and Nikki's looking at me, and we're kind of interested. But then Nikki goes home with her mum. We then get offered this job in Dumfries. We come to Dumfries, and I go to church, this church that John had advised us to go to, the lighthouse up on the hill. And we go there, and Nikki's standing there on the worship team. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is amazing. That's that lassie that I met in Northern Ireland. So obviously, this is where they were fae. So me and Nikki quickly started dating, fell in love. Awkward, but my dad and Nikki's mum also started dating <laughs> and fell in love. So, <laughs> while me and Nikki have the whole, we were together first, they jumped the gun and they got married first. We were raging. We were fuming. But there was nothing we could do about it. We had expressed how we felt about it to them. And uh, so, a lot of wind-ups, stepbrother and sister, all that. But no, absolutely not. Not the case. But um, so... <laughs> So my dad married Nikki's mum. He's working in this rehab and he's going through his life struggling to deal with all his stuff, you know. Disguised very well though. Lived a normal life, got his car license, got a mortgage, doing really well on the outside to everybody else. Me and Nikki, however, I had obviously buried deep the stuff that I had from my past. The upbringing that my dad had exposed us to the stuff that had happened to me before my mum and dad got together. There was abuse and stuff like that, very difficult to deal with. And um, my, uh, me and Nikki, so we get together, we're starting to go through life, and I'm starting to feel stuff from my past. I'm starting to spend life in church, a young Christian, just thinking, how do I navigate this? And stuff quickly started to come up against us stuff that any normal person would just go for some support or help and get to deal with it. I knew what I knew though. I turned back to drugs. At that point, I turned to, it was codeine. So we were actually buying over-the-counter codeine painkillers and it eventually, over the years, got worse and worse and worse. They obviously destroy your stomach because I was buying the ones that I ibuprofen in them as well. I was taking 64 sometimes a day I was doing a six and a half stone. 
had 33 blood transfusions, had countless hospital stays. Nicky was spoon-feeding me water some nights, thinking I wouldn't make it through the night. And all this while, we'd obviously started a family. Holly had been born. We're trying to kind of go through a kind of normal life while under the surface all of this stuff was going on with me. And Nikki had her stuff that she'll explain and, and share with you. But obviously going through all that, um, ill, death's door a lot, went to the doctors, got put on methadone. At that point I thought, oh great, I can get another job, we can get on with life. Absolutely not. Um, things just over the course of years spiralled even worse for me. And it's because it is all I knew. All I knew was to suppress. All I knew was to blur or dull any pain or any anything I was ever feeling. That's, that's how I knew how to deal with it. So we're going through life. I'm on methadone. Nikki eventually is on methadone. We're having more kids. We have issues in that. There is some difficulties when Holly's born. There is difficulties when AJ's born. All excuses to throw ourselves deeper into our addictions. So before we knew it, we're on methadone. We're buying street Valium. We get Xanax the odd time. We're smoking dope. Nicky's drinking heavily. There's just all sorts. It's just absolute chaos and pandemonium. And it's all just history repeating. We're moving house. We moved to Northern Ireland, me and Nicky. It's almost like word for word. We went to the Christian Family Centre. We tried to sort our family out there. We get put out for smoking. Um, it was literally like a predestined thing that we couldn't escape the gravity of this. Um, so as time goes on, social services are getting more and more involved. They're asking questions. We're running for them. We're moving house. We're moving country. We're coming back. There's all these reports I've written building up to a point, to a culmination of them coming to us one day and saying, look, you're failing your kids. We were absolutely failing our kids. Absolutely we were. Your kids did absolutely not deserve that. But um, social services came and they said, look, why don't you voluntarily release them into the care of your family? You've got your mother there, Nikki's mum. You've got your sister who can look after Roman, so why don't you voluntarily do that? And said no. He <laughs> said no. So just they went away, they gathered themselves, and then they came back and they said, It's not a choice now. We gave you the choice, it's not a choice. We went to a hearing, they took our kids away from us. I can remember 26th of February, 2019, the last night. We tucked them into bed. We sent them out to school the next morning. And they never came back to our house. Broken. Absolutely in pieces. Thinking the mess that we had made, the destruction, the, the course of destruction behind us was visible. Everywhere we went, everybody we ever came into contact with. So obviously at that point, you dive deeper, don't you? You want to numb it mayor. You don't want to. We had started, I'd been to Bible college when I was 18. We'd started on this journey with God. We didn't want to know. I didn't want to know. That happened. Quite soon after that, a family friend, where Pastor Sandy came to us and said, look, sort this out. Can you make a decision 
to sort this out. And Nicky, behind my back, agreed. <laughs> and I wasn't even there. But then she came in and said, oh, I spoke to Sandy, and Sandy was like, why don't you just try and get help and speak to John? And what about these Teen Challenge centres? I knew all about Teen Challenge. I wasn't for that. I was like, ah, no, nah, that's, that's, that's difficult. That's hard. I don't know if I can face that. But Nicky, kind of driving force there, was like, no, let's get these forms. Let's, let's fill them in. All the while in Mahi, I'm pacifying Nicky. So I'm thinking, fill them in, but I don't think anything will ever come of this. We'll, we'll make the phone calls, but I don't think... I don't know, I don't think it'll work. In the meantime, things had took a drastic turn with my dad. I explained to you how my dad had, had a, a, a straightforward word for God, undeniable word for God. My dad turned the other way. My dad went on about his life the way he saw fit. 17 years, my dad was clean of heroin. He had an, an issue. Nicky's mum had discovered that he had bought street Valium and he had a big tub of them in the house. So she flung him out the house. She was like, no, this isn't the Willie Gilmer I met and married. You need to sort this out, quite rightly. Put him out the house. My dad was out of the house for five weeks. Five weeks. And in that time, he had went for getting fun with street Valium to being fun dead on his face for a heroin overdose. Broken again. Absolutely shattered. My dad, for all his issues and his problems, was my dad. He protected me, he saved me for the abuse that I was going through when he lived just down the street for us. He had rescued us for that. He chased the guy off with a knife. And I thought that was great at the time. My dad was gone. We'd lost the kids. Now we've lost my dad. Broken again, absolutely struggling. Get to a point where it's getting closer to my dad's funeral and Sonny Bray phones up and Martin Duthie, who I'm sure you will remember for Sonny Bray phones me and he's like, like Andrew, I know, I know your dad's gone he's like, but if you don't come in here now he's like, I don't know what your future will hold for you you'll probably be death and destruction so I agreed we had my dad's funeral the Monday and I entered Sunny Bray, I think it was a Tuesday or the Wednesday, I'm not too sure, it was a bit dull. You'll, for, you'll forgive me for forgetting. But um, I went in, and I lasted six days. In that six days, the stuff that was coming to me, the thoughts, the regret, the destruction that we'd left behind. We rented a house for Nicky's mum, and the way that we had left that, the absolute state, the way that we had left our kids, the way that we just it destroyed everything that was ever run about us, our whole church family, everything. It was just flooding into my head and I could not handle it. I couldn't handle the memories of the abuse, none of it. So I left. I was stood at the kitchen, I was doing dishes and Gordon came in and he took one look at me and this was after three times I'd packed my bags and he'd taught me it or whatever. And he came in and he was like, I was floods of tears, absolute pieces. He says, you're leaving, aren't you? And I was like, aye. So Forbes, who I'm sure you know as well, Gordon's brother-in-law, drove me to Aberdeen to the bus and he, he begged me, he pleaded with me, that guy. He was like, Andrew, don't do this. Don't get, don't get out of the car. I can take you back right now. He really, really felt, and he told me afterwards that he thought nobody would ever see me again. I was like seven stone again. I was absolute, I wish I was, I 
wee bit thinner now, but I'm happy to pay like this, you know. But I was seven stone, I was death's door. And he thought, this is the last time they'll ever see you. He dropped me off, he had to do it. I went back, and Nikki, Nikki's mum had took the kids away on holiday. And I went back while she wasn't there. And, oh man, the pandemonium that ensued when she got back and realised I had left rehab. I thought she was going to kill me. She's saying, oh, you're still going though, you're still going, you make sure you still go. <laughs> so Nikki's still phoning in, and um, Nikki has decided, Nikki's like, no, I'm, I'm going to go for this. So Nikki gets a phone call and gets her date to go in. In between then, I had another false start where Martin had offered, paid for my bus fare up, got the bus all the way to Aberdeen, decided I'm not doing it, bottled it, and went missing a couple of days, uh, and all the way back. It was, again, <sighs> panic on the bus, just in absolute pieces, thinking I can't do that. I don't have the ability, the strength, the will, the power to do this. So, it's a false start. Nikki goes in. Nikki goes into Benaya. She didn't know whether I'd made it or not. So there's a couple of weeks in between then where I am on my own. Anita won't speak to me. She won't let me see the kids. Lost my dad. Lost the kids. Thought I'd lost Nikki now. I'd lost Anita. My sister's still dealing with her own addiction issues to this day. Had nobody. So in a hostel on my own, and that is exactly where God came and met me. Just in my heart, in my soul, in my spirit, I could feel. Try to play a song on my phone, and loud as, clear as day, God spoke to me. It was a, oh, come, oh, come to the altar. And I'd heard that song before, but the lyrics and the words of it was as if God was speaking them directly to me. It's like, no, you need to come to the altar right now. Leave behind your regrets and mistakes. Come to the altar. And I absolutely broke. I was in pieces. And it was exactly where God needed me. It was exactly where God wanted me. Needed me in that moment to be stripped bare of everything. I love tools. I love cars. I love restoration. And if you do, you'll know that anything that you need to restore properly has to be taken all the way back to a proper foundation, has to be stripped of everything and rebuilt, ground up. And that's exactly where God had met me. So I come to my senses. I ask Martin for another chance. I get the bus up. I go into Sunny Bray and I'm struggling. It's difficult. See all that stuff coming to you, all the feelings, all the emotions. Couldn't speak to Nikki. Never spoke to Nikki for four months. We didn't really know how each other was doing, only just getting told. Gordon would come in and he'd be like, ah, your wife's doing well. And he always made it as if she was doing better than me. And I was like, ah, I hope so. <laughs> but um, obviously they had a plan and, and they had an arrangement, agreement, and, and we're going to work it out with us. During the programme, COVID hit. So we done a lockdown program. That plan went up in the air. We get one day out. Well, we get two days out. You were supposed to be on your first weekend home. COVID hit. It's supposed to be Holly's birthday. We couldn't get home to see her. It started dealing with all our stuff. I'd started dealing with the stuff that God was rising up in me. 
just piece at a time, just bit at a time, just as a journey, as a process, no all at once, no in one big emotion-filled session with Adrian, just a wee piece at a time, lift it up to God, leave it to him, bring it back if you need to. So we're going through that COVID hit. We're really struggling, fighting back, like, ah, this isn't fair. And they're trying to explain to us, like, the whole world's in lockdown. The whole world. You are locked in here. You have got each other. Just get on with that, you know what I mean? So um, we did. We started to get through our program. And during this, we'd heard very little for social services. Obviously, we are trying to sort ourselves out. And we had a plan before we went in. And we'd said to social services, look, if we sort ourselves out, can this get turned around? And I think... To get us away, they'd said aye, but they'd obviously changed their mind while we were there. We were getting meetings and getting told that they were going for a residency order, which meant legally we probably would have no chance of getting our kids back. Thankfully, Joy, Anthony and Anita, as well as us, felt it in my spirit that that wasn't for us, that wasn't the right thing to do. So we denied it. We said, no, we don't want that. But they still kept pressing us. They still kept going on. We, they, I think because they hadn't met us well, like we were in rehab, they hadn't started to see how things were changing for us. They just had this obviously inch-thick booklet in front of them of our catalogue of mistakes and failings. So then we go through that with reha- every, um, social services. We have four or five different social workers. And we come out... And we'd start to meet the social workers, and they start to get to know us, and they start to hear a wee bit of our story in our past. And at the first meeting, they're like, no, we agree, you don't need the residency order. At the second meeting, they're like, you know, I think we can actually lift the compulsory supervision order, which means there is no legal hold over your kids anymore. The same meeting, they're like, we also think you just can have your kids back. We are just absolutely floored and blown away by this. While we're in the centre, coming up against all these things, the whole time, the overriding thing that me and Nicky kept getting from God was be still. Be still. Don't fight. Don't try and fight this yourself. This isn't a battle for you. This is my battle, God was telling us. He told us. Exodus 14, 14. The Lord your God will fight for you. You need only be still. So we strugglingly sometimes obeyed that and held to it. And every time there's a meeting and we're just getting blown away by what they're telling us. We're getting houses that we'd been waiting on. We'd waited on a house. We got a flat when we first left. We were waiting on a house. We're getting impatient and God's saying, be still. We're still. We go and view a house. The first day we go to move into the house, there's a UCB note sitting on the door. Like, wow, this was amazing. It's the perfect house for us. Absolutely ideal. Um, can fast forward to tell you that we've got a date set. Holly and AJ are moving back home full time in the summer and roaming shortly after. Something that we thought never, ever possible. Social services actually contacted us a couple of weeks ago and asked us to go and speak at a webinar and give a talk on red flags and how we felt they had failed us, and how we had been with them, how we disguised our compliance, how we 
interacted and, and were able to hold them off and, and they really took a lot from it and that was just an amazing turnaround for me. We were in a meeting one day where they're all greeting, taking our kids away and then a few years later we were in a meeting expressing ourselves to them about how they had failed us, we had failed them, we had failed our kids and they're taking our advice on how to help that in the future and that is just an amazing, amazing flip. That's God's grace. It's undeniable. So, as it stands, we are obviously kids are coming home, things are great. We're starting a recovery cafe. So, we are based in a, our church is based in a YMCA building. It's an old school, and we've been granted Friday nights for a trial period where we're going to bring people in, share stories of how Jesus has transformed lives, and try and point them in the right direction for help. And that's kind of, we love coming round, we love sharing my story anytime we get invited somewhere. We went a wee bit old school this time. This is the first time we've took the kids with us. Don't know. <laughs> Maybe try and find a babysitter the next time. Holly, absolutely fine. AJ, can I get on with But Roman's running around trying to fight folk and everything. He's, he's wild. <laughs> but it's, it's great. We absolutely love it. And I um, just want to bless you. Thank you for having me. I'll, I'll pass over to Nikki. I'll not keep you as long as him, because I'm not the talker in the family, but um, <laughs> thanks for having us. Um, we've just been really blessed this weekend. The whole weekend has been amazing, so thank you very much. Um, my start in life starts a wee bit different, so I was brought up in a Christian family. Mum and dad in ministry, uh, travelled the country writing songs and singing, and, and pretty much kind of what we are doing now. Um, and things looked great on the outside, but behind closed doors was a very different story. Um, when I was eight, I found out that my dad wasn't my real dad, and that kind of, it did shake me, but I was terrified of my stepdad. Um, he was very abusive, um, physically and emotionally and mentally abusive. So I was too scared to ask any questions. So I just, I always kept it inside until it came out in other ways later on. Um, so when I found this out, I had all these different questions and wanted to ask my mom and wanted to ask him, but I was, I was just too scared to ask anything. And from the age of eight, my mom says that's when I developed an eating disorder. So obviously trying to control these feelings and, and not let them come out, and it's, it's coming out in behavior. Started hiding food, um, lying about what I'd eaten at school, and this is from the age of eight. And that's kind of where my pattern of behavior just went downhill. Um, carried on going to church, being brought up in church, um, young teens in the youth group, on the youth band, in the worship team, never having a real encounter for myself with Jesus, but, but thinking I had. Um, hearing everybody else's encounter and taking that encounter and putting it into my life, but never had it for myself personally. Then when I was 14, well, 13, I met Andrew, and then 14, we started dating. Um, and that's where it all went wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so we quickly fell in love and 
everyone's telling us, oh, you're too young to be in love and slow it down and you're going too fast and we didn't listen. And at 17, ended up pregnant with Holly um, and thought it was a good idea to get married at that age. So 17, I'm married, pregnant, and I think it's a good idea to move away from home. So we move away, we isolate ourselves. We're in the country. I have Holly four weeks early and there's issues with Holly. She's not growing partly because of history with eating disorders. So there's, there's problems right from the start. When Holly's born, me and her are separated. She's put in special care and I develop postnatal depression. And that's where my love for tablets, antidepressants, tranquilizers, sleeping tablets, alcohol started. Anything the doctor gave me, I just abused. Um, just mixing cocktails and just a real, real mess. So we decided to move back home, thinking that'll solve everything and that'll fix everything. So we moved back home. And four years later, I find out I'm pregnant with AJ. By this time, I've been to the doctor. I've had history with painkillers. The doctor's answer was to put us on a methadone program. So we're on methadone, get pregnant with AJ, freak out because I'm pregnant and on methadone. Um, my pregnancy was going great and obviously I had anxiety because of issues with Holly. Pregnancy was going great until I had 10 weeks to go um, and I went into labour early. Um, nearly died, AJ nearly died. He had a bleed on his brain. AJ has autism. Um, we were told he wouldn't see, he wouldn't walk, he wouldn't talk, but he can see and he can walk and he can talk and he can sing. <laughs> Um, and still with the antidepressants, still searching, still just trying to do my best as a mum. No doing very well, but trying my best every day and it's, it's hard and you're just kind of drifting along. You've not really got a purpose, you've not really got a drive, you're just drifting along going day by day just trying to get through the day. Four years later, again, Roman came along. Um, and by this time, things had really got bad. My depression was a lot worse. I was now looking on the streets for medications as well as my stuff from the doctor that wasn't holding me, it wasn't enough. And I became an alcoholic as well. Um, and very, very quickly after Roman was born, things went really, really bad. My house was neglected, the kids were neglected, I was neglected, couldn't look after myself. Social worker at the door all the time and, you know, I keep one room nice for the social work coming and, you know, tea and biscuits, let alone there's no food in the cupboards, no food in the fridge and every other door in the house is shut. Trying to hide, trying to make it look like everything was okay and eventually, like Andrew said, you know the rest of the story. Um, the other side to Andrew's bit, when I go into, go into rehab, I go into Benaya. And at first we were doing it to keep people off our back and I thought, oh, I'll do the detox, I'll get through that six weeks and I'll be okay and I'll leave and everything will be fine. And most of you know, like after the detox, that's when the hard work starts and that's when you've got to deal with these, these things and bring them to God and, and deal with them. And the staff are amazing and and God is really in that house and really in that place. The fact that eight women can live alongside each other and never have a fight is amazing. 
Um, the night that Andrew went AWOL, I wasn't allowed, I wasn't allowed my phone calls yet, so I had no phone calls, and I had been told that he hadn't arrived at Benaya. I wanted to, eh, Sunnybrae, I wanted to give him a book or something, and said to Gordon, I'll give Andrew that book, and it, I got told that he hadn't arrived. And that night I was a mess, I think for about a week I was a mess, not knowing where he was, writing letters to my mum, big capital letters, like, just let me know that he's okay, let me know that he's alive. And the night that Andrew says he had the, the breakthrough and God really came to him, I was on the bathroom floor up the stairs in Banaya, crying my eyes out on my knees, praying for a miracle for my husband because I knew it was going to take a miracle. And when I hear him speak, and he's, he's better at it than me, but when I hear him speak, I'm, I'm just so proud of him and, and so grateful for where God's brought us. Because um, it's only by him. It's only, he can, he's the only one that can do this. Um, I had my personal encounter with Jesus in a room with Hazel at the, at the center and decided that I was there for him and him, him alone. And if my marriage survived, then so be it. If it didn't, so be it. But I was there for what God wanted for my life. I was there for what Jesus wanted to do in my life. And he, he did, he done the work and, and we're here today and we're starting this recovery cafe and it's amazing. And just hold tight to what he's got for you. Like Andrew said, don't focus on the rocks in front of you under your feet, but focus on your goal. Keep, keep your eyes on what he has for you. Um, my verse in the center, one of them was Joel 2.25, for he will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. And we lost a lot of years. We missed out on kids growing up and stuff because we just weren't there. Like, we were there, but we weren't there. Um, and God has restored our relationship, especially with Holly. Holly was older. Holly understood a lot more. Holly found it very difficult. And she's sat beside us, so I think she's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and it really has restored far more than the years that the locusts ate. And my other verse was Romans 8, 28, for he will work all things out for the good of those who are called according to his purpose and who love him. And we've all got a purpose. Every one of us have got a purpose. We're all called to do something. It's different things for everybody, but we're all called for a purpose. We're all here because we love Jesus. We're all here because we accept what he done for us, that he paid the price for all our mistakes a price that we could never pay. Just hold on to him. Like, love him, because he loves you no matter what. He doesn't see you and see all your mistakes. He sees you as perfect, because you're perfect in him. You're made righteous in him. It's got, he, 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 like, we look at ourselves and we see our story. We look at ourselves and we wonder where we're going to go. He's got it all mapped out, all planned out. He knew before we were ever born, ever created, ever knitted together. And that's what I'll leave you with. And we've got a couple of songs we'd like to do. Um, one of them's more recent. One of them spoke to us when we were away. Um, so we'll do that. <laughs>
technology. I'm not the singer. Nikki's absolutely the singer. So I apologize in advance. <laughs> This goes out to the worried. This goes out to the stressed. Soaring out a million thoughts running through your head. To everyone that's waiting for better days ahead. Tired and frustrated and leaving words unsaid. Please don't hold your breath. Just breathe. It is a miracle we can breathe. This power in the way that we breathe. Release your heavy burdens and This is why we have breath to praise the Lord. Sometimes you're in the desert. Sometimes you feel the pain. Sometimes it comes a storm. And sometimes he lets it.
God bless us. Let's heal it for Andrew and Nikki Holy as well. They've encouraged us so much. Wow. If I can say, if I had read that story in a book, I'd be like, wow, that's some Jesus-filled, grace-filled, life-transforming story. I would love to meet him. Um, it's interesting, that, that song, Chain Breaker, Miracle Worker. For now, you see the people that, um, if you've ever been to Christian conferences, you'll care if I'm speaking about during worship, there's usually somebody drawing a beautiful, wonderful picture of angels and Jesus coming down for heaven, and it's prophetic. And you know, I've been at a Christian conference, you know, like the morning about just a few people admitting that they've uh, got a Christian conference. Uh, I think I should have been like that. The only problem is I'm not very good at drawing. But see, during preaching and stuff, if you ever see me writing, I take note, I sometimes just doodle and draw pictures. And I was just writing, look, at chain breaker, miracle maker, chains being broken. That's what I was feeling, like, see, yes, chains being broken, as genealogy that was so full of mess and so full of torment that Jesus breaks the chains. And then he breaks the chains, or oh, that's addiction, abuse, or oh, doctors, prescription pills, or oh, alcoholism, mental health, and heroin addiction. He's a chain-breaking, miracle-working Jesus. And when you see it in our life, you just think, absolutely wow, Thank you, Jesus, for restoration and breaking that chains. And you would see your kids got to get brought up in the way of the Lord, and their kids' kids got to get brought up in the way of the Lord because he's changed the hell bloodline for Jesus. And thank you, Lord, that you're so, so good to us. Haven't they been such a blessing? Let's hear it for them again. 